0: Now, on the last uh, Sunday of the year, I want us to spend uh, some time uh, energetically with the Bible. I want us to to really dig into this today. It's got some great stuff to teach us and turn to the letter to the Philippians. Just for one Sunday, and uh, rather than focus on one bit of it, I want us to take it as a whole Try to dig out from it its big message. It's a great letter, an encouraging letter, to help us to keep clear in the gospel, to keep united, standing firm in one spirit, and to keep going for another year. An encouraging message at the end of one year and the beginning of the next. And uh, we're going to read a section from the middle of the letter, Chapter 3, verse 12 to chapter 4, verse 1. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul writes to this church in Philippi, Not that I have already obtained this or am made perfect. That's his redemption. Body and life. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me, And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory in their shame with minds said on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm, literally, stand fast thus in the Lord, my beloved. Well, let's pray that God will speak clearly to us at this transition moment in our church life as we stand on the threshold of another year. Let's pray together. Father, these are your words, they are inspired, they are alive, and in the hands of your Spirit they are powerful, and we pray that you would impress upon us the message of this letter as a whole today, for our good, for our encouragement, for our inspiration, and supremely for the honour and the glory and the reputation of your own name. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. When you write a letter, you do so for a reason. And uh, at Christmas, of course, letters are in our minds. Many of us will have received Christmas letters, bringing us up to speed with people's perfect families. Uh, this year, this year, uh, electronically, um, which slightly softens the blow, I think, electronically, because you can press delete. <laughs> and of course, now it's a thank you letter time as our children, those of us who have them, grind out these slightly uh, constrained letters to uh, relatives. And we write letters for a reason. Really, do we write a letter without a reason? And it's no different with the New Testament letters. Every one of the New Testament letters is written either to an individual or to a church or to a group of churches for a reason. Paul never writes randomly. He writes for a reason. And the letter to the Philippians is no different. Now, Paul had a strong affection for this church in Philippi. He had begun it some ten years before he wrote the letter. We read of the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 16, uh, the extraordinary events that led to the birth of this uh, church uh, plant. And uh, God had clearly wanted this church to be established in Philippi, and it had flourished. It was living, it was vibrant. And over the years, the church had maintained a strong partnership with the apostle Paul. Inger, it's great. I can't see you wherever you are. It's lovely to have you here with us today. It's a letter about partnership between Paul, the founding pastor, the missionary, and them. And over the 10 years, they had maintain real partnership with him. Just flick across to chapter 4, verse 15. You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. And even when I was in Thessalonica, that was... uh, A tough time for Paul. He was drowned out of town in three weeks. You sent me help for my needs again and again. So there was a strong bond between Paul and them. The date of the letter, 60 A.D., some ten years after the church had begun in Philippi, 60 A.D., Paul is in prison in Rome, not at the end of his life, but one of the toughest times in his life. Why is he in prison? Because he would not divert or swerve from the simple gospel and telling people it. We know that from chapter 1, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, he's in prison, has really served to advance the gospel so that, and these are wonderful uh, testimonies to Paul's um, gospel convictions, That even if I am in prison, everybody around me knows the imperial guard. And almost certainly some people in the imperial guard were converted. Paul's imprisonment had not halted the advance of the gospel. And the church in Philippi, when they heard uh, the news that Paul was in prison, had sent one of their members or elders a fellow called Epaphroditus, to Paul in Rome to express personally their fellowship, their prayer support, their partnership, and their care uh, for him. So turn to chapter 2 and verse 25. I'm getting you to look at this. I I want you to be convinced this is what this letter's about. And it gives us confidence that these letters are written for reason. They they sent this fellow Epaphroditus to Paul just to encourage him practically in prison. Chapter 2, verse 25, "'I have thought it necessary to send to you, Epaphroditus, "'my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, "'and your messenger and minister to my need. "'For he has been longing to see you all and has been distressed "'because you heard he was ill, indeed he was ill, near to death.' but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ. And so these are the circumstances of the letter. Epaphroditus has been sent from Philippi to Paul in Rome to bear their greetings, to give him uh, something practical, I'm sure. He'd been ill, Epaphroditus. He nearly died. The one thing that had given Paul and Epaphroditus is time. And as Paul and Epaphroditus spent time together, they would have talked and you can just see the, 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 the reality and the realness of this. They would have talked about the church in Philippi. And uh, Epaphroditus would have said, well, it's great, it's strong, but we're under pressure. We're under pressure for the first time really significantly in our church life, and there are little tiny fissures of disunity in the church. And and Paul, I'm worried, Epaphroditus, I'm worried. And uh, the upshot of all that is Epaphroditus gets well, and he's off, and he gives Paul a hug, I guess. And Paul says, look, I've got a letter for you. Here it is. Stick it in your pocket. Take it home to the church. Gather them together and read it to them. That's the letter to the Philippians. So what's been going on in Philippi that has caused Paul to write? It is not a general letter. It is not a casual letter. It's not keep calm and carry on for another year. I've had a number of Christmas presents in that line this year. (laughs) I know you're trying to tell me. A number of them have holy themes. One of them I got was keep keep calm and keep trusting God. I hope that will continue. Um, what's been going on in this church? It's got to steal this letter. Now, the key to it, I think, is at the end of chapter 1. Just look at that section with me, verses 27 to 30. This is the the, the key. You know, when you write a Christmas thank you letter, thank you, Granny, for the socks. That's the key, okay? Here's the key to this letter. Only let your manner of life... Let me just speak this to us as a church. Only let your manner of life imagine you are hearing this at Philippi as a church just like us, they're no different. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear that you are standing fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. And uh, what is going on in Philippi is this church that is a living, vibrant gospel church that has stood firmly and solidly with the Apostle Paul through all of his ministry. They were... I guess for the first time in their life as a church, experiencing real difficulty, opposition in the city of Philippi. Why? For the same reason, Paul is in prison because of the clarity of their gospel convictions. And that is why Paul is writing to them to strengthen them, to encourage them, to put his arms round their shoulders and say, stand fast in one Spirit. Now, we can infer from chapter 3 that there was teaching all around them in Philippi that it drifted from the Word of God and the simple gospel, and they had held firm. But it was not easy. Verses 29 and 30 are very striking. Uh, For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. The grace of God is not simply a matter of salvation. Grace extends to our participation in the work of Christ. And participation can mean suffering for the sake of Christ. One of the major factors that the church in the Western world is coming to terms with at the beginning of the 21st century is a shift from abnormality, where suffering for the sake of Christ was exceptional, back to normality, where suffering for the sake of Christ is normal. And notice what Paul says. It's very striking. It is a grace gift to you to suffer. The Lord Jesus will not give the baton into the hands of a church to suffer for his sake lightly. Do not relish it. That is daft, because it's hard. But do not fail to see nor feel the privilege to participate in the work of Christ and his suffering. Whatever that means, individually or corporately, as a church. Now, Paul says three things. He's a preacher. He probably says 25 in the letter, but these are the big three, okay? He, He says you see the logic of this letter. They're struggling. They're strong, though. They're vibrant. They're full of life. And he says to them three things. One, keep clear on the gospel, do not swerve. And he says to them, secondly, keep united, stand firm in one spirit. And then he says to them, keep going, persevere in the faith. Keep clear, keep united. Keep going, and uh, that would make a good New Year's resolution for a church. Keep clear, keep united, keep going. First, keep clear on the gospel. Now, what is the gospel that we are to keep clear on? What is the faith of the gospel? That's what Paul writes at the end of verse 27. Now, what is the gospel that we are to keep clear? Uh, clear on. It might be that there is somebody here this morning that doesn't really know exactly what the gospel is. It is very important individually and as a church corporately that we know what the gospel is, that we are to keep clear on. Verse uh, 6 of chapter 2, this uh, wonderful uh, hymn, I think it is, to Christ. Here's the gospel. Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. And when I read Scripture out of the ESV, I'm old enough not to remember the ESV. I want to read out of the NIV. And one of the things Ed said to me as I read with him over the past few weeks, he said, why have we changed translations again? (laughs) That wonderful hymn in the middle of Philippians to Christ Although he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking upon himself the very nature of a servant, even unto death. Therefore God exalted him and raised him to the highest place before whose name one day every knee will bow. That's the gospel. God becoming man in Jesus, Jesus dying on a cross to save us, Jesus rising to life to give us life, Jesus reigning to give us confidence. I have a hunch that Wesley had Philippians 2 in his mind when he wrote, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die. That's the faith of the gospel. Keep clear On the fact that at the heart of the gospel is the cross, where Christ Jesus died for our sins, and the resurrection, whereby he gives us life. Keep clear on that. Do not take the cross out of your gospel, and do not take the resurrection out of your gospel. Also, keep clear on how you are saved. Glance across to chapter 3 and verse 9. And be found in him, Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on him that I may know him and the power of his resurrection." And and Paul kind of throws that out. Even writing to this church, he wants to say, do you want to know Jesus to somebody in Philippi? Do you want eternal life? How? Fall at the feet of Jesus, unable to save yourself, and receive the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Do not stand on self-righteousness because... It is sinking sand. Kneel at the feet of Jesus and undone by mercy, receive His righteousness. Keep clear on that. Keep clear on how you are saved by God's grace alone. One of the wonderful things about Ed, and he is in my mind, so he'll creep out occasionally, and I'll get to say that as if he was a very godly man, but he was a a flawed, sinful man. He was one of these people that you saw both. And he never in his life ever, ever felt anything other than undone by the mercy of Jesus. When he prayed, you just knew that. Never, ever change your commitment to the cross and the resurrection. Never, ever change that we are helpless without the righteousness that is given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And one other thing about the gospel you to keep clear on, chapter 3, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to be subject to all things. Keep clear on the fact that your citizenship is in heaven and not in this world. Now, that is very, very powerfully conveyed to you when you sit with someone as they die. Our citizenship is not in this world. It's in eternity. And this body, your bodies, this body of God's people is nothing like the resurrection body and the resurrected earth Do not pretend that the gospel means prosperity in this life. It's not true. Now, that's gospel clarity. Clarity on the cross and the resurrection. Clarity on the fact that Christ alone is our righteousness. Clarity on the fact that suffering is now glorious for eternity. Keep clear on the gospel. And if around you there is a different gospel message... And what are the lines of a lack of clarity on the gospel in our Western culture today? One, undermining the cross and the resurrection. Two, undermining our helplessness before Christ. Three, a gospel that promises prosperity in this life rather than authentic gospel experience. And if there is a different gospel message around you, and there is. Keep clear on the gospel. And immediately Paul gets them by the scruff of the neck and he says, You are clear, Philippi, but keep clear. That's the point. Keep clear, keep clear for another year. And then read the letter again. Keep clear, keep clear. Why? Because the true gospel is true. Two, it is not ours to change three, it converts people. Sam prayed in his prayer, and I'm glad he did. One of the great things to look back on over the past year, and I can see some of them sitting in front of me, is that people are converted to Christ. That's what it's about. And they will not be converted without the true gospel. And the gospel is true before our eyes when you read it to someone on their deathbed. And the gospel is about forgiveness and resurrection with a body that is incorruptible. Now, what are the consequences of gospel clarity? Well, opposition and cost, number one. Suffering for the sake of the gospel, engaged in conflict. It's all over the letter, it's all over the New Testament, it's normal, it's real, and it's moving from the eastern part of the world to the west. So don't panic. All it will do is clarify the church and in time lead to the spreading of the gospel on the western side of the earth. Opposition is a consequence of gospel clarity, so also is advance. Real conversions, real churches, living churches. And of course the real consequence of gospel clarity is in eternity. Lose your clarity on the gospel to make life a little easier here on earth or keep clear on the gospel knowing that the fruit of gospel clarity will be seen in eternity. As a minister, I I, I sometimes in my bleaker moments shudder to think of the day I'm going to face the Lord Jesus. Another minister has just smiled back at me. He thinks that too. And Jesus is going to say to me, now what did you say to them? what did you say at his funeral what did you say when they were dying what did you say to the church what did you say to them and the real consequence is in eternity and the eternal perspective is so important we will not see or should expect to see The advance that comes with opposition is the other side of the coin necessarily in this life. Sometimes we will, but often not. There are two time frames in this letter. There's now and there's eternity. There's not now and five years' time when the gospel will turn in Philippi. It's not that if you keep clear on the gospel, well, your church will double in size, you'll get a wonderful building, and the the country will turn, and people will listen to the likes of the Queen and others, and they will think there is something that we need to recover in our country if you keep clear in the gospel. That may happen. But Paul has two horizons in view. He has now and eternity. We do not know what will happen now. And Paul says, keep clear, and eternity will show you the fruitfulness of clarity. Secondly, keep united, stand firm in one spirit. A little faster, this year I hope to equalize the time I spend on my three points. One of the things we say to our ministry associates when they train, and and the more senior people like Sam and Andy, is that uh, no preacher in history has ever managed that. Not even the Apostle Paul. He majors on point one united, stand firm in one spirit. When a church is under pressure as the church in Philippi was, the unity of the church comes under pressure. Why? Because people are under pressure. Two, because we're sinful. Three, because we doubt. Four, because we disagree. Five, because we do not know what the future holds and we humans like to know what the future holds. And underlying all of it, because Satan knows but to a church that is united under pressure, if he can sow a seed of disunity, he knows what difficulties that can bring. Now, as a church, we are thankful for the unity we have, and I want you to, to know that it is real. I mean, it is, and you would know if it weren't. It's not perfect, but it's genuinely real. It's precious, genuine, but we should not presume on it or sit lightly to it. Paul is strong with the church in Philippi about the need to keep united. Remember that key phrase, let your manner be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's kind of military language. How do you keep united as a church? Through gospel clarity, yes. Through a shared commitment to the word of God, Yes. But Paul's primary focus is cued by the phrase, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The key to unity within a church is our attitude to one another and the actions that flow from it. So look with me at chapter 2 and verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and you can see Paul And I wonder when they read this letter, there'd be tears in their eyes. There has to have been. If you have any encouragement, me saying this to you, if you have any encouragement from your unity in Christ, I mean, who could not be encouraged to have Jesus Christ as your brother, your saviour? If you have received over the past year any comfort from his love, any Joy in your heart from participation in His Spirit. Any affection, any sympathy from Him, complete my joy. By being of the same mind, having the same love, being in accord and of one, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus." What is the key to unity within a church? Humility, servant-heartedness. That is how we are to live with each other. Christ-like practical commitment to one another. Now, very practically, what does it mean? It means to share the load that others might bear it a bit less. It's very practical to share the load so others bear it a bit less and those who bear it more begin to moan understandably, just share the Lord. It means to listen and learn from the views of others. One of the things I've learned over the years as a minister is to listen, really listen. It means to set aside our preferences for those of others. It means to examine our hearts for seeds of ambition or conceit. One of the keyest ways, I think, to engage that, and I do it with myself, and I encourage you to do it, is what do you say to people's faces in the church and what do you say behind the door? That's the key to that, I think. And we're all guilty of that at times. Now, if that all sounds a bit grand, let me be even more practical. It means loving each other. It means caring for each other. It means speaking well of each other and keeping humble. One of the things that Sheila has said to me again and again, and she feels well loved. Let me just respond to that, and she'd be the first for me to say that. We must love everybody. Everybody. Not just a man like Ed and his family who's at the heart of our church's life. Everybody. That's the key. Humble hearts. Servant hearts. If it still sounds grand, I guess you could boil it down to this, don't fall out. Families sometimes do, even the best of them, over Christmas. Even the best relationships can be strained, like Euodia and Syntyche at the beginning of chapter 4. They are great gospel workers. They may have returned from the mission field. Their names are in the book of life. But if two prominent people fall out in a church then the church can divide down the middle. Keep going, keep united. No, keep clear, keep united. Thirdly, see, Paul was quick on point two, you see. (laughs) Finally, keep going. Now, this is the the, the kind of rhythm of the preacher. Keep clear, keep united, keep going. What Paul does is he goes, keep clear keep united, and keep going. It's the other way around. It's a crescendo to keep going. Wonderful words in chapter 3 that we read. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining towards what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God. And what a wonderful description of when God takes somebody home to glory. The upward call of God in Christ. The upward call of God is powerful, isn't it? What does keeping going mean? It means making spiritual progress. It means pressing on in a time of transition wisely. It doesn't mean starting endless new things, that's daft. It means pressing on with the things that really matter, the things that are really core. It means keeping doing evangelism, things like the gospel project, keeping building quality in our small groups, keeping training people, and keeping sending people to other parts of this country and around the world. <coughs> Pressing on means keeping going. It's a crescendo going up. It also means joy. Sixteen times in the letter, Paul mentions joy. So much so that if you open up a Bible commentary and they'll tell you what is the letter to the Philippians about, they'll say it's about joy. Now it is, but it's not really. It's about a church under pressure being urged to keep clear, keep united, and press on. And as you keep clear, keep united, and press on, even if all manner of flat comes at you, you will have joy in your heart. Why? Because you participate in the gospel of Christ. And as Christ suffered, he knew profound joy because he did his Father's will. Now you see it at an individual level. How is it that Ed does he left this life, never lost his joy in the Lord? Not mirth or happiness, but real joy in the Lord. You see it at a corporate level. As you keep clear, keep united, keep persevering, you know joy in your hearts. And I look out at you this morning, and I know in many of your lives there is no reason for the human joy. To be honest, 2015 for me has not produced much of that, personally, but spiritually... It is powerful in our lives. It, it's sort of a category that is different. It's there in our hearts, however hard. There is labor and there is struggle, but there is uh, joy. One of the very practical ways we've seen that, our ministry associates, are all on holiday, so I can talk about them every morning this year, they've loaded the van at seven in the morning, whatever it is, and it's dark and murky and, and and they filled in all their appraisal forms and they didn't say it through gritted teeth. They said it genuinely. They're glad to serve and glad. That's exactly what this is about. It's not rocket stuff. It's just stuff like that. Joy in the Lord. And, we need to be vigilant as a church for next year. but we do know joy and the encouragement and the affirmation of God for clarity and the pleasure of unity. We're always as elders, kind of sniffing around for any sort of senses of cracks, and rightly so. But as a group of elders, we know unity and joy and a spirit of togetherness that is strong. Now, I want to uh, personalize this at the end with the obvious uh, person, Ed. I want to do that. And I've done well not to look at any of you, and I've looked at the clock. And I get to say a lot about this at the funeral. I'm going to tell you some remarkable things about our sinful man. How he has instructed me personally over my life as a minister here in some very, very powerful ways. If I could sum him up, um, is he not a great illustration of what we've talked about today? For what did he do in his life? One, he kept clear in the gospel. He did. The cross, the resurrection, how we're saved. Where our citizenship is. He never wavered. And when big stuff came along, like a building that he had invested his life in looking after, and there is a big picture of that building above his fireplace with a degree of artistic license that no artist has ever engaged in since. (laughs) He invested his life in that building, and yet he walked away for it in an instant because of clarity on the gospel. That's what he did. And secondly, he kept the unity of the church. How? By not doing anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, he looked to the interests of others. He was a humble Christian man who served all his life. He led humbly, and he kept unity. And he kept going, persevering in the faith, right to the wire, until the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus Was his. A fine example of a Christian man whose example was not another Christian man but the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great letter that uh, we've kind of scratched around today to dig out its heart. It is an encouraging letter. And we pray, Lord, that as a church family, we would keep clear on the gospel, that we would keep clear on the cross and the resurrection and how we are saved, and that our citizenship is not in this earth but in heaven, and that we would keep united, standing together in one spirit, and that we would pervade through the church family servant-heartedness and humility and the practical expressions of that, that we would love each other, Everybody. And if we have failed to do so, we ask for your forgiveness and pray that we would do it better. And we pray, Lord, that we would keep going, not adding stuff to what we do, but doing the stuff we do better and better, that we would keep reaching and building and training and sending until each of us hears the upward call of God in Christ. And like our brother Ed hear the words of your Son, well done, good and faithful servant, welcome home. Lord, thank you for your sustaining grace of us as a church, and pray that you would take us forward into the coming year with confidence in the Word of God, in the Gospel, in your Son, and with servant hearts as we share together the privilege and the load of ministry, for we pray it all in Jesus' name, Amen.